I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. Today's guest has an incredible background in the world of water polo. Jamie Comer is a two-time world champion and an Olympic silver medalist with Team USA. She's now a facilitator who brings a transformative presence to her audiences, empowering individuals and groups to embrace authenticity. Drawing from her Olympic career as a professional goalkeeper, Jamie has guided people from all different backgrounds through their challenging transitions in life with compassion and an open mindset. Alongside over 15 years in wellness and a master's degree in health and wellness coaching, she seamlessly integrates guided visualizations and creative imagery into her facilitation, empowering individuals to tap into their intuition and find purpose. Listen up, when she starts to explain creative imagery, I've not heard of anything quite like it. And to be honest, it sounds like a very cool exercise that we could probably all benefit from. Jamie is also the host of the Consciously Connected podcast, creator and facilitator of The Campfire, and she and her family love to travel the world. If you're wanting to get started with the powerful practice of journaling, I designed a super quick but profoundly effective method with the Confidence Journal. I created the Confidence Journal to remind you daily of where you're going, and it will teach you the attitude you need to get there. Each and every day, you'll learn lessons that will move you closer to achieving your biggest goals, all while growing your confidence during the pursuit. Through simple guided journaling, your focus and thought process will begin to shift. You're going to start to recognize shortcomings and triumphs what needs improvement, and even pride in what you've accomplished. The Confidence Journal will begin to show you the beauty of your own journey and just how tangible your goals really are. Through the end of October, you can snag free priority shipping off an autographed copy of the Confidence Journal with coupon code STARTNOW at checkout. That's start now, one word. So visit laurawilkinson.com slash journal to get yours. That's laurawilkinson.com slash journal, coupon code STARTNOW. Before we get started, make sure you smash that subscribe button and give Pursuit of Gold a five-star review. And please tell your friends about this podcast because the fastest way and the best way for us to grow and improve to that next level is by you personally sharing this show, your favorite episodes with those people that you care most about, your friends, your family, your teammates, all of the people who would enjoy this podcast. That allows us to keep bringing you more tools, resources, and inspiration. All right, I believe that there's gold in your future, so let's dive on into this episode. Jamie Comer, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you about all your cool things, both past and present. Laura, it's a joy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Well, I'd first love to know, I love to start at the beginning and how learn how people got into their sport because water polo around here, they have it at our high school now. But like when I was growing up, that was not a thing just everywhere, you know? And so I didn't really meet water polo players till I was at like Pan Ams, Olympic Games, World Championships, that kind of thing. So is it normal for you growing up? No, it wasn't normal for me either particularly. So yeah, I think it depends where you live. I grew up in central California and water polo at the time was more predominant in Northern California and Southern California. And even in central California, the only way I found out about it is one, it's really hot. So I used to play in the pool a lot. And two, my older brothers played when they were in high school. And so I started when I was in high school, which I realize is pretty late for most athletes. And I started in high school and I, we didn't even have a girls team at the time. So I joined a boys team 
And then, you know, sophomore year, we got a girls team. So it, it was just up and coming at the time too. Oh, that's cool. Did you do sports before that at all? Total variety. Yeah. I just did a variety of things for fun. Like, you know, basketball, volleyball. I mean, I'm a, a tall gal. So I kind of played with those ideas. Try gymnastics, try track, like all these different things, you know, some felt right. Some did it. <laughs> that's cool. And so naturally gravitated toward water polo following the brothers, I guess. Right. <laughs> yeah. Playing in the water. was just super fun. Like it's something clicked. I wasn't great at it to start with at all. It just felt fun, though. You need to be a pretty strong swimmer, though, right? I mean, there's so much involved because you're not just swimming, you're handling balls, you're kind of fending off people. Like, what do you think is the maybe most important skill to learn as you're developing as a water polo player? Many athletes, water polo players would come from the swimming background. I didn't, but I'd say that the top trait is learning egg beater. It's just the way you tread water to stay afloat because that's really what you use to move around. Whether you're a goalkeeper, a field player, whatever position you're in, egg beater is hands down. Like once you get that down, everything is just a lot easier. So hard, but, but easier at least. Now, what was your journey from high school to collegiate playing like? Did you kind of hit the higher levels first or not? Because this is something new for me because as an individual athlete myself, like it was a very different road. Like if you performed well, you could probably get a scholarship offer and things like that. But what I'm learning watching my friends have kids with going through high school sports on team sports, it seems very political. Like, was that the same in water polo or how can you really show yourself off as a team player, but as an individual to get recruited by colleges? My position was unique too, because I was a goalkeeper. So I was still kind of on my own in in the position on a team. And then with our team in high school, I, I tried out the way it works with water polo is you can, you can try out for the, you know, the development teams, the U.S. development team, the junior teams and things like that. So that's a way to get into the pipeline for USA water polo to, to be kind of, to have more connections to coaches and to, to be seen and, it's obviously a different game now, but, and I'm going to date myself with this one, but when, when, you know, when I was reaching out, I was, I mean, I was sending letters, I was sending VHS videos, tapes, you know, that type of thing to coaches. So it was a very, you know, I was just reaching out individually saying, Hey, I'd like to play for your team and would have conversations with Cal or with UCLA and seeing what would be a good fit and would go on those recruiting trips. And yeah, that's kind of how, how it looked, <laughs> but I had to work my way to get a scholarship. Yeah. So it didn't just come easy for you. You had to like work for it and be proactive about it. Yeah, I definitely had to be proactive about it. And then I remember having, for me, I was, I just really connected with UCLA and I spoke with the coach. I met with the coach, Adam Krikorian, and he was like, okay, you know, we can have offer maybe a little scholarship to start with and you can kind of work your way up. So prove yourself in that space. And which was, for me, it was a good little competitive, like, okay, okay, we can do this. We got this. (laughs) What was that like transitioning from high school to you now have this opportunity, but you're going to have to work for it, which you seem to like the invitation. But how hard was that exactly? Was it what you expected? It was a lot of fun. I appreciated it. I was ready for it. I was excited for that big change. I mean, I came from a smaller school in the central California, went to this and then went to this huge, you know, NC2A, well, it became an NC2A, I think the year afterwards, sport I and mean, this college was amazing. And I had actually just had two shoulder surgeries after my senior year in high school, going into my freshman year in college. So the idea of proving myself was, you know, 
I kind of prove myself with my work ethic by doing a lot of leg work. And during the preseason, it wasn't like I was taking shots as a goalkeeper. I was in the corner doing leg work and training, like cross training, because I wasn't physically ready and capable yet of blocking balls. So it was an extra challenge like that because I wasn't training or pre-training the way I would have normally probably done. Well, was that discouraging at all? Because you're coming in, like you said, having to prove yourself, but you, the one thing a goalkeeper really needs is her arms. I could see that being really defeating on one end. Did you handle that well? You know, I got honestly, I'm amazed at how well I handled it. Because it, it, it was it was hard because you know, kind of that fear of being left out a little bit. You're watching everybody else grow. You're watching everyone else improve and getting better and working hard and showing their work ethic. So that was hard on that part. You know, feeling a little kind of that little left out feeling. You're like, oh no, I'm a little behind. And I had to sit with that. I had to really sit with those feelings and emotions around that one. But I'm grateful it didn't like it didn't affect my willingness to keep going and go for it and actually prove, okay, I can do this. I can be the starting goalie. I can make this happen. Just keep believing in me, everybody. Give me a chance. How long did it take you to actually get to that point where you were able to prove yourself? It was that freshman year. It's just that with water polo, the fall time is the preseason. And then the season starts in just after January, pretty much February on. So I had about a month and a half of shots, taking shots. And um, it was a little rocky at first and then was able to pick it up though that year and was able to be at the starting goalkeeper. So I was so grateful for the preparation and training beforehand that actually helped lead to being able to be in that place. That's pretty cool. What, what was the rest of the college journey like? Cause you did some pretty awesome things there, didn't you? Yeah, it was so grateful that the, the team, the I mean, Adam Krikorian, the coach, is amazing. He's now the USA Women's Water Polo Coach, Team USA, an amazing human being. And he really helped cultivate, you know, a particular type of environment for us as well to help us to thrive. Um, And I really did feel like I was able to thrive in that environment that he did, that he helped support. It was fantastic. You know, we had, I remember one particular thing. He, we had one or two championships in a row, uh, maybe at this point, and he had printed out a piece of paper that said complacency, complacency, I believe it was. And learning that, you know, to be complacent, what that means is kind of just being okay with where you're at, you know, just okay with where I'm at. I'm good. You know, and how that can let us kind of just settle and not really keep working harder. And the fact that that still is with me years and years later, you know, this reminder that, okay, whatever you've done in the past, like, let's be present with where we're at. And what would you like to achieve moving forward? And I feel like that that really embodied the kind of this drive and the excitement and the the focus of the entire collegiate season and experience. <laughs> well, I love that. I think that's so powerful. Isn't it funny? Sometimes it's the littlest things a coach will do that just sticks with you. So like vivid and so powerful for like decades after, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when did you start kind of hitting this international scene? Well, after, at the end of college, I thought, honestly, I thought I was done because water polo, you know, just like many team sports, there are the political sides of it. I figured you know, there wasn't a spot for a goalkeeper on the national team. It was already chosen, say, for the 2004 Olympics. So I went and went to Australia and played for a couple of years. A teammate of mine from who was in uh, at UCLA was Australian. And so she said, hey, 
there's a great league out here. You would want to come and I'll raise my hand. I love to travel. That was like a pro circuit. It's not a pro circuit, but it's the national circuit. So all the national team players in Australia play okay. there in the circuit. And the quality of play is amazing. It's got the, instead of, you know, where, how we have NC2A is we have, you know, collegiate teams over in Australia. It's like you have your club teams. And the club teams are is where it's highly competitive. So it was it was a lot of fun and also highly competitive and challenging. And so that's where I played for two years. And at that point, again, I thought, oh, you know, there's probably, I don't know, maybe, maybe there's not a chance for me to go on the team. Like I really didn't think that there was a life for me in water polo after that. And the same teammate she mentioned, she's like, well, you could just reach out to the coach and ask. Like <laughs> you can ask and ask to go play train or try out or anything. And I was like, oh. Yes, I needed that reminder, apparently, that you can be proactive in your life <laughs> and go after what you want. And so I did and had the opportunity to try out and was able to start and made the training squad. And that's kind of where the, the international circuit began. Isn't that so funny? Yeah. Like you you graduated college and all that fighting you did to get into school. But yet, like, it's funny how we know these things, but yet it leaves our brain somehow in a different scenario. But I, I have to ask, because that's something that this happens to athletes after college that want to keep playing their sport, but either there's not a professional circuit or like sports like diving, it's really small. And so it's hard to sometimes pick up sponsorships and things like that. So how are you able to financially continue playing the sport you love in club leagues over there if it wasn't like a professional circuit? Were you working on the side? Like what was your jam at that point? Are you speaking about Australia or are you speaking about the international with the USA team. Well, I guess why you were training in Australia for two years, how did you kind of financially get by in that time? I had some savings that I used and then also um, did a little work on the side. Gotcha. Yeah, it was not much, but enough to like, it, you know, and I got help staying at people's places, homes for some time. Like it was, there was a community support aspect to it, which was huge. Well, see, and I love that because I think people need to be reminded, like if you really love your sport and you want to continue to do it while you feel healthy and great to do it, like there are ways to do it. You just got to get creative sometimes, think outside the box and call people <laughs> like we, we heard is so powerful. Just ask, right? Just start asking and seeking out there. So what was that journey once you got onto the national training squad? How did it progress from there? Was it quick? Was it a slow grind? Where Did you feel behind? Did you feel like you were an equal? Like how was that kind of process starting? Oh, the process, you know, I think was full of ups and downs, ups and downs, because with water polo, there's, you try out essentially just before the summer season for the summer tournaments. So you prepare during the off season, depending on the time of the year in the quad, you know, between the Olympics, there's, we were either training on our own or we were training with the team. When we were training on our own, that was harder for me. I went, actually went to Spain with my well, now husband, but we were um, just together at the time. And he was playing volleyball, professional volleyball out there. And I was training water polo, but I wasn't training that much. So it was up and down because, you know, my dedication at certain times of the, in the quad of the four years was up and down, balancing it with travel or finding a pool to train in and, and kind of working with that. Some of the summers I'd make the teams, one of the summers and I didn't make the team. And that was super duper hard, obviously, you know, had to kind of really reassess and, and, you know, decide, okay, what do I want out of this? Do I want to keep going? How do I feel about it? Ups and downs. So did you have big goals right from the beginning? Were you like, I'm getting on this, I'm going to the Olympics, like I'm doing it all? Or were you just kind of feeling it year by year? Like, what was your MO? For me, yeah, it was like, if I'm going to do this, let's go to the Olympics. Let's get on the Olympic team for sure. That's what I want. Go big or go home, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If I'm going to do it and put in the time, like I'd, been here, I'd heard from some of the 
you know, some of my teammates who have already been to the games, they're like, okay, they told me what I was like, like, okay, day in and day out. All right. Am I ready for this? Like, how am I going to make this worth it? You know, for me. And so for me, I did have that big picture goal for the Olympics for sure. That's cool. So what was like the first big international competition you made that you were like, whoa, I'm kind of on the scene now? Oh, I did it. I'd say it was 2005, the World Championships in Montreal, which is the World Championships for water polo. Maybe, maybe it's similar to diving. It's the, you know, it's the next biggest thing to the Olympics. The World Aquatic Championships too. It's for people that don't know, it's all the aquatic sports. So it's water polo, diving, swimming, synchro swimming. So it is like a mini Olympics for the water sports, which is kind of special too, because we actually get featured maybe a little more than we would at the regular Olympics. <laughs> you know, Totally, totally. Tell me about that World Championships. It felt really surreal being in the environment of a world championship experience. And it was nerve wracking. Like I really had to learn how to assess with my own nerves and be on that scene, so to speak, on that platform. And that was really hard. That was hard for me, I remember, adapting to it and adapted. But it was it was surreal in that respect too. Like, whoa, okay, we're in this. We're doing this. You guys did really well. I mean, you got a silver medal there. Was that... Like, and this is something that I've heard. I mean, I'm sure you know Brenda V. I think you guys were on the Olympic team together. I've known her for over the years and stuff. And I remember her telling me, and this shocked me because I never thought about it because again, I'm not a team sport person. We don't have tournament bracket style competition. So when she told me getting a silver feels like losing the gold, but winning bronze sometimes feels better than getting the silver. Like, how did you feel about it? Was it totally the opposite? And you were like, sweet silver medal? Or does that kind of resonate? No, it definitely resonates because I, you know, in a team sport too, it's it's like that environment of the team, whatever we're feeling collectively, it kind of, even if internally, I'm like, yes, my heart's happy. Yay. At the same time, I'm in this group where we are striving. We are working so hard to reach gold. So it totally does feel like that. And it, it does maybe sound funny. And it was like that for the Olympics in 2008. It takes some time, I think, to really let the silver and the achievements of what that is settle in because what you're moving through and you're playing for a gold medal game and you just lost it. So it, it feels kind of funny. Yes. And, and I, I realized out of the perspective, out sitting out of the pool, it, it feels funny to me now. I'm like, well, of course I'd be excited for silver. But I'm like, <laughs> at the moment, no, I was not excited for silver. <laughs> Right. That that was such a like ironic moment for me to hear that. But I was like, that. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I just had never considered that. But you went from that silver at Worlds to then winning Worlds. So how was the flip side? I mean, were you on the team every year at that point? Were there ups and downs with all of that? And I also want to know this too, like, and I know you coach a lot of this now, so it'll probably be a great question, but how do you goal set as a group and have your own goals as well? Ooh, that's a challenging one. I think even one that it kind of reminds me of having a family now too. How to goal set for yourself and for your family and also for teams, you know, as your teammates. And I think there's on a team sport, overall team is first in that respect. I think one thing I was not great at, but one thing I learned, had learned afterwards was okay, well, you do still need to, for you to be your best. You still need to honor your goals and whatever your goals are, whether that is specific performance related or well-being related. And yeah, the, the so to speak to the championships. Yes, it was amazing. I was uh, I was able to be on the team in 2007 as well to, you know, where we won. It was 2006, the year in between where I didn't make the team. So I, I suppose that was kind of good luck in that respect because it would be <laughs> on the world championship teams and then on the Olympic team. It was great. 
or serendipitous timing, I'll say. It really did make a difference, I think, um, looking at the team goals. And then it's been a learning process of how to honor the individual goals at the same time, though, for sure. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, how do you go from being on Worlds to not making Worlds to being on Worlds? Like the emotional roller coaster. And like you said, if you're moving and training different places, like trying to find that internal motivation, but yet you're part of a team. But when you're not on the team, like that just sounds so difficult to me. Like, how do you get through that? Like, where do you put your brain in those situations? It's all over the place, to be completely honest. And I didn't handle it the best. I mean, I now in retrospect, I realized, ooh, that's where I could have learned these techniques <laughs> and been better at this to help honor my emotional well-being. Okay, that would have been helpful. <laughs> right. You know, so it is really hard because I think in at least at the time or the environment or my own beliefs, my beliefs were that in sport, okay, I have to keep a very particular type of face, meaning a strong, like a face where I don't show my emotions. I don't show with you how upset or sad I am because I want to show that the team is most important. And so I'm not going to really share in all environments how I really feel about the situation of not making the team, for example. And I didn't really, really give myself a place also to release that, except with my partner and maybe in certain places. So that was a learning experience too, to how to navigate your own emotional well-being and really take care of your emotional well-being and mental health when you are maybe not achieving what you want or maybe you know something's not going the way that whatever challenges you're facing because it's so much easier obviously if you're making the team you're winning you know you kind of have these external things that you're excited about but really how do you internally tap into your own inner, whether it's your inner strength, your inner happiness, your inner peace, when things outside of your life are not maybe going the way you want them to go. If you, Jamie, now were going to talk to Jamie then, what would you have told yourself to do in those times? I would have sat with her. First thing that's coming to mind for me is I would sit with her and I'd have her put her hand on her heart and have her go take her through the process of how to feel her feelings and literally feel what she's feeling and acknowledge them, say them aloud, and maybe be in a group in that space so she feels heard to process what she's feeling instead of essentially bottle it up and not know what to do with it. I think that so it would be more of a process I would take her through just to learn how to navigate her own emotions so and to validate them and be like, okay, because that allows her to you know, let them go, move on with more ease. Now, I million percent agree with that. I love it. I've talked to some people too about like sometimes a grieving process, especially if you don't make that team or you don't hit that goal that you had, like it's gone, you know, and that's really upsetting. And if you don't, like you said, feel it and acknowledge it and release it, like it's always in there and it bottles up and it festers and it turns into all kinds of ugly things that are not good or healthy in any way, shape or form. Totally, totally. So as you're getting closer to the Olympic Games, I want to hear about this build up to the Olympic Games and how does that process work with water polo? I mean, do you know a year out that you're going to be on the team or is it like the miracle movie where you're getting cut like right before the end? Like how does that process work for you guys and what was that build up like to this big goal for you? Yeah, it's a kind of a mix of both. So the way it works with water polo is, you know, we've been speaking about the individual and the team and it kind of works like that too. So as the team, the team needs to qualify. And in our case, we had an opportunity to qualify the year prior. So in 2007 for the 2008 Games in um, Rio, Brazil for the Pan American Games. And that's where we get to qualify if we win the tournament. 
in that opportunity, we did. We won. So we knew one year ahead of time that we that the USA gets to go to the Olympics in 2008 in China. So cool. You know, we're stoked. And then the individual piece comes in, though, is where, oh, okay, well, just because you made the team and you were on that winning team doesn't mean you're going to be in the team on, in a year. So we find out individually if we're on you know, Team USA for the Olympics. I believe it was about one month out. Oh, that's it? Mm -hmm. This is like so interesting to me because that's actually a lot of how diving is. Like we have to qualify spots at like the world championships and the world cup before the Olympic games, we have to qualify our federation spots. So I can go qualify team USA a spot, but I still have to go to our trials to earn it, which is about a month out of the games. But like, that's my individual spot. I'm not having to play with a team. So how on earth does that work with you guys trying to train together, but not knowing if it will be you together? Yeah, it is tricky. I mean, the team is small enough at that point, you know, there's, there's a few people it's not a ginormous group of say 50 or even at 25 at that point it's smaller. So it is a certain number only, you know, there's, and this is at the time, I mean, it may have changed in different ways. So it's really hard though, because you're like this tight knit family at the same time, there is a very competitive energy in it because you don't know uh, yeah, who or what is going to, you know, you know, what's going to happen exactly in my, in my case, hilariously though, this is kind of like the stress of sport like we had two goalkeepers training and we typically take two goalkeepers. And even in that situation, like I was so absolutely nervous because in my head, it was like, no, that doesn't mean that two goalkeepers are going to come. Like you need to wait till your name, like really, because that's, <laughs> you don't know, like things could change. So it was, it was absolutely nerve wracking. And it's, it's hard on the dynamics, you know, how to really like to grow that support space of trust too for each other. And it's one I still kind of continue to explore about, okay, how can we support and foster trust when there is also a competitive space for it, the individual needs? That's a really hard dynamic. Uh, I can only, I can only imagine what that must have been like. But okay, so how do they name you? Like how how did they go by name? Were you guys all in a room together? Did they call you? Like how is that done? Uh, well, well, for us in that year, we uh, went in and we had specific times we were meant to arrive, uh, you know, at the pool in the office. So there was like a gap of time a little bit between each person. But essentially you went in and saw your coaches and they would tell you if you made the team or not. And <laughs> so, it's so awkward. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> That's better. I was just actually talking to Mackenzie Cohen, who is a Paralympic swimmer, and we were talking about how they announced the Paralympic team because they have to qualify by world standards. So even after they compete, they all have to go to this big room, this big auditorium at the end to get it announced, like who's actually on the team and who's not. And we had that one year, we went from like a qualification to a selection process and they, they sent it by email to us. So at least you guys got to hear in person. So I think that's at least a good thing. But man, it's, I'm telling you, it's, it's so funny how you get to that level and it still seems pretty janky. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's hard either. It sounds like it's hard in every situation. I don't know if there's a, a great way to do it or not. I don't know. I mean, fair, fair, right? Yeah. It always looks better on the other side, I guess. Okay. So you, you hear the words like, I mean, what is that feeling like in that moment that they're like, I mean, what do they say? Like, Jamie, you're on the team or how does it come out and how do you react? I'm trying to remember. I, I think it is something along the lines of, you know, it's pretty simple. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Smile on the coach's face and like, oh yeah, you're on the team. And like, okay. You know, uh, it's no, it's, it is wild. It, it took some time to sink in, I think, and like let it sit and like, oh my gosh, wait, it's real. It's real. It's real. You know, just asking those questions. Yeah. 
Okay, so you get in there and like, what is walking into Beijing, seeing the village, seeing the venues? What is your Olympic experience like? You know, it's interesting that we've been bringing up the individual and the, the team space because I think it was kind of a mix of everything. It was a mix of everything because it was surreal and magical because it's the Olympic Games, you know, and being able to be an athlete and step in that space is is freaking magical. It felt like such an honor. It felt like such a proud moment. And, in, in my life and for our team to be there. And then, you know, at an individual level, you know, I'm kind of working with my own emotions and my own mental health. And so there's ups and downs there. I'm not going to sugarcoat that in any way. So it's totally a mix of you're in this exciting place and you're having all these feels because of your own sports performance. And, you know, which is confusing because humans, we have a lot of emotions and clearly that, I mean, that's the world I work in, you know, so I'm talking about it because it's something I, you know, I love talking about and hold space for. It is a funny experience because you are feeling so many things and it's so exciting at the same time. (laughs) So as you guys are starting to compete, I mean, I'm assuming your team goals were pretty stinking high because you just come off from winning Pan Ams and winning worlds. So how do you go into that tournament? I mean, are you guys just like fierce and on guard? Like, how are we feeling and how does it play out? You know, I think I mean, we were obviously very focused and determined for the gold. And and with the water polo, it's, you know, you're playing pretty much every other day. You're you're on for the whole, almost the whole two weeks. Oof, really? That's long. It's a long process. So it's not like it's just a quick and done. You're, you're really in it for the long haul. So it's a very patient and one game at a time experience. So yeah, we went in going, going big. And I think that's why it was so hard actually when we did get silver, because we were in that space that we were speaking about of being so excited, being so motivated and so had these expectations for ourselves for gold that it took, I know it took me some time personally. And I think us as a team to really, you know, be proud of where we landed. What was that final tournament like? So you, cause you were battling for gold in that final tournament, right? So was it close? Was it a blowout? Was it, you know, I know you say you're proud now, but in the moment it was tough, but like, how was the actual like tournament itself? The, the competition, that final, what do you call it? Is it, is it a meet? The game. The game. Thank you. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Such a simple word for me to forget there. <laughs> all good. All good. It's uh, the Netherlands took the lead and then we caught up and ended up being, um, we ended up losing by one. I mean, it was super close. So it was hard. It wasn't like, you know, we were totally blown out um, at all. It was definitely hard. It was hard. Trying to deal with all the emotions and you're getting the silver medal on the podium. I mean, are you guys happy on the podium? Or are we like trying to put on a good face? Or are you guys just mad? Like how, <laughs> how was that? <laughs> if you look, if I had a picture, you could probably tell pretty easily. It's like, there's, it's like, you know, the gold excited silver. There's like, we all have tears in our eyes. There's just tears. You can tell we've been crying. Even if we're smiling, you can tell that there's been tears. Like it's, it, yeah. <laughs> I remember seeing some of the pictures. Yeah. It's, it's pretty, I, I laugh now a little bit, you know, like, wow, we're, we're not looking too excited there. <laughs> um, but you know, and then bronze medal, they're like, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny to me. Uh, I like memories, right? Man. So how do you come off of that with all the emotions of just the playing itself and the medals and award stands itself? What made you want to keep going after that? Well, I really was was questioning it. I mean, I had I was going to have a surgery after 
more hip surgeries at that point too. And my body was not really happy with me. (laughs) So I really was considering retiring at that point. It didn't feel done yet though. Something didn't feel complete for me. I wasn't sure what it was. I wasn't sure why, but I did want to keep giving it a go. So I did go for another season and it felt so right because I, I had been losing kind of the, the love of the game, so to speak. And that had been diminishing for me through the process. And then that final season, I think I really had reassessed and told myself, like I was going to finish it on this note of doing it for me, so to speak, for fun with the love of the game that I started playing water polo with. And so I think for me, that's why I wanted to keep going. I didn't, I don't know if I would have been able to explain that at the time, but I know in my heart that that's really kind of why I I wanted to keep going a little bit longer. And you finished on a pretty good note, didn't you? Yeah, we did. We did. World Championships again. Yeah, in 2009. Another gold medal, right? Yep. That's awesome. What do you think, like, you said you were kind of losing the love. Like, do you think you were just kind of done with the sport? Were you losing motivation? Like, what would you, I guess, as, as people are assessing where they are in their careers, maybe like, how do you know when it's maybe just time to move on or that you're just burnt out and need a break or just bad attitude? Like, how do you kind of decipher the difference? Because sometimes those things are all a bit intermixed, you know? They are. They are intermixed. I, I agree. And I think it's a matter of, for me at, at the time, I was, I was just at a place of tuning inward, tuning inward, asking myself, okay, why am I playing? What's the why? What's the underlying energy? What's the motivation? And I was really assessing my own intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic motivation? Was I doing it for the lifestyle, for the glory, so to speak, for the title of being a professional athlete? Was it that, the external things? Or was it because I'm having so much fun every day and I'm like loving it? And like, I love working hard because I love going towards this goal. And I wasn't having that. And when I was asking myself these why questions, I wasn't feeling the intrinsic space anymore than that inner joy, that inner, I'm doing it because I love what I do and it's worth it for me. So I went back and forth quite a bit, you know, honestly, like, oh, wait, is it just like a phase? Is it burnout? Is it all the above? But it is. It's, I think for the bigger picture was just that I wasn't prioritizing my well-being. I wasn't prioritizing my health, my happiness, my needs. And if I'm not doing that, then how can I be the best at anything, let alone be the best at an athlete? I think that's great. And I really appreciate you just being honest about it because sometimes that's hard to, to talk about for people. I know you're very in tune with your emotions, so I knew it could, we could go there. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, so what did you do? Like, like walking out that like, okay, I, it's time to retire. Like, I, I feel like I'm done with this phase. What was transitioning out of that? Like, like, did you know what you wanted to do? Were you kind of lost? Like I, you said you were married at the time. So maybe that was some stability, but like, what was that period of transition like? Yeah. Marriage was definitely stability for me. That was my partner since college. Like we've, yeah, we're solid, solid. And that felt great. After the Olympics, actually, I started teaching yoga because I was curious about, you know, with the amount of injuries I had, I wanted to know more about my body. I wanted to heal my body and take more holistic care of it. So I became yoga certified. I was teaching indoor cycling. And I, by the time I retired, I was already getting certified in Pilates. So I was going into this world of like fitness and wellness, which really lit me up. I love this idea of trying multiple things, teaching multiple things. Like I was just, you know, like a sponge wanting to learn and, and teach and share that. And it was still in the active world. So that was an easy crossover, still moving my body in some way releasing stress in that way and 
with still motivation and team kind of environment in a different capacity though. So it, it was easy in that way, I think. It was, I had already set up the career space. I already set, set up that path and had started working with Lululemon Athletica in the stores. And so that helped set up a community. So I think I, I had set up certain things unknowingly, like, okay, career, finances, community, awesome. And lifestyle with that, because it's a, you know, a healthy lifestyle kind of experience. I hadn't set up like the emotional stuff. I, I hadn't worked through the emotional stuff yet, mind you, but that <laughs> <come> later. <laughs> and what point did you go back to get your master's degree? Cause you got it in health and wellness coaching, right? Yes. Yeah. So I spent years in the kind of the teaching different types of um, through certifications, you know, like the yoga, the nutrition, those aspects. And oftentimes with athletes, youth athletes, professional athletes, um, major league baseball athletes, like a variety of community. And then it was actually when my first son was born, he was a year old. So it was 2018 when I started, I believe. And I did it online while just as a new mom. And the reason I went into that was because amongst all that type of coaching and teaching I was doing in the wellness world, you know, you could tell somebody, Hey, eat this. Hey, do these exercises. But you know, if you told me that too, I'd be like, okay, great. I could, but I'm only going to be motivated a little bit, uh, <laughs> a certain amount of time, maybe. And it's only going to last so long. In other words, like I wasn't never really finding like the, the motivation. And I realized, oh, wait, through coaching, like by asking people questions and helping them find their own answers, like you're way more motivated to do stuff and you're way more tuned into yourself, which means you're actually going to like do what you actually want to do. <laughs> How did that kind of start? Because I, I feel like health and wellness coach, I mean, that sounds so broad. You know what I mean? So how does this kind of all come together? How I found it or how the, what health and wellness coaching really is. And what it really is. It can mean so many things. And and as you know, it's like you look online at coaching and there's a billion certifications (laughs) or types of things, or you can call yourself a coach. You don't have to legally do anything to call yourself a coach. Like it's, we have all different types of practices and it's all great, whatever works for you. You know, it's like, I think of what's really fun is finding something that feels right, you know, as the coach. And so what worked for me was I found a master's degree that offered, you know, a really holistic approach and what it is. I mean, I thought it was like at first health coaching, you know, how to eat healthier, but it's really actually the type of courses I went through. Maybe this will embody it quite well. One of the first courses I took was called how to be a healing presence. So it's really about being a healing presence for people to work through whatever it is that they're moving through in their lives, ask questions. Essentially, me as a coach, I just ask questions, <laughs> lots of questions for you to come up with your own answers and your own clarity. It's a form of, you could call it a form of life coaching. It's such a broad aspect because, you know, your health and wellness involves every aspect of your life. So my, I mean, my clients, I mean, I do transition work now too, of course, but it, we talk about every topic. It's not specific nutrition related or body related at all. It's like the whole being, right? The whole person. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so where has that kind of taken you? Because you've hosted a couple of different podcasts. Now you have the Consciously Connected podcast, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And also you you have this campfire group sessions. Like, Tell us about all of these things that you've done, because I'm sure they probably are all a little bit harmonious here. (laughs) So harmonious. They really are. I think what it's led is full circle to me offering spaces for people to tune inward, 
explore who they are at a deeper level. And so whether that's through the podcast or whether that's through the campfires, which is group sessions or private sessions, you can do them privately as well. But what I've done is I noticed that there was, you know, we talk about like kind of like what lights you up and your intrinsic motivation. What I found, there was a theme. Every time I had a coaching session or a group session before campfires existed, before I created those, I would always bring in these guided visualizations, not like visualizations like, okay, imagine yourself on a beach and then you walk down the stream and then you go into the water. I'm not telling you what to see, but it's more like I bring up, like say say if you're like, okay, I'm feeling really frustrated right now. And I'd be like, okay, well, if you put that in a visual, what would that look like? Oh, interesting. And you say, oh, it's like, I feel like I'm frustrated. Like there's a big thicket in front of me, like a big bush. And I'm frustrated because I don't know where to go and everything's pokey. And I'll be like, okay, what do the pokies mean to you? Like, what does that represent? And what else do you see? How's your body responding in that space? So it's like, I noticed these themes coming up of, yeah, you'd come up with a visual. I'd ask you about kind of whatever an emotion was attached to, essentially. That's really what sparked the concept of the campfires is cultivating spaces that I take you through a guided visualization and it, and even in the private sessions, any coaching work I do, there's always some type of visual, the podcast, there's the visuals. So it's, it's just an opportunity for, you know, for us to get out of our heads and into our hearts a bit more. I think that's really cool. And I like how you're having people put their thoughts and feelings and emotions into these images. Like I've never thought about doing something like that. That's really kind of fascinating to me as helping you process it, like you said, in a different way. Where did you kind of come up with that? Is that something you just dreamt up at some point? Like, is it what made you think about that? Well, it's, it's in the in the coaching space a bit. I mean, some of our my coaching mentors would have things like they say, okay, you can use visuals, and I believe that there's some some practices around creative visuals or creative imagery. It's called. I remember one coach said, okay, if you know a, a client is having a hard time to make a decision, you can take them through three doors. Have them imagine three doors you know, and each door is a decision, an option that they could take. So, you know, kind of the idea of using your imagination, it came from the the coaching practices I learned in my master's degree. And then from there, I think it's just, (laughs) I'm laughing because I'm looking out the window and I'm seeing a field. I'm in Washington state and I'm looking at this field with with a thicket, actually, of like (laughs) this wild bush. Are you feeling frustrated, Jamie? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm looking at the valley, actually, the field part. It's very open. I'm very happy about that. Good, good. Um, I've hurtled over the field uh, or the thicket area. But I'm laughing because I tend to, I think it's also my own imagination. Like I'll just go outside and this is like the childlike wonder fun stuff that, you know, I go outside and like, wow look at the field. It like rep, it was just cut down. It represents like this new space that you have. And like, I'll, I'll just literally, you know, just have fun with it and go on the beach and it's foggy. And I'm like, Whoa, it represents the fog that you sometimes, you know, you feel cause you don't know where you're going in your life. And I don't know. It's just something I like to play with too. I think it's really cool. I think it's really neat. Cause I, you know, when you think about when you dream too, like you're sometimes your, your dream is just this hodgepodge of things you've thought about or seen or heard during the day or that you've been thinking about for a while. And like, it all comes together in this really weird, you know, visual at night in your dreams, but being more conscious of it, you know, and, and discerning of, of what that probably does mean. I think that's really kind of fascinating. Tell me more about the campfire session. So you said, they're group or private. So are you doing these guided imageries and people are walking through them out loud in front of other people? Or what is that like? 
I'll take you through it. So the way the way it's worked recently, I was just in Syros, Greece. My family has been location independent. We're a bit settled more now right now, but we were location independent and we were living in Syros, Greece for three months. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's been amazing. And I also the campfire up to the group there of uh, of families who are doing the same thing as us. We were with a company there called Boundless Life and we were, you know, these are families, digital nomad families, people who work remotely. And there's an education center for the kids. and But the adults, you know, are wanting personal growth. They're going through their own transitions. As many people are moving, there's career transitions. So as an example, I had, in that particular instance, I had five sessions and every other week. And people show up and it's voluntary. We're in a circle and I take you through. We could do it virtual too, of course. But in this instance, it's, you know, I, I kind of give you a layout of what's what it's about today. Every day has a different theme. So for example, one day we had your gifts, learning about your gifts. And there's a visual I use with clients sometimes. It's about having a life pack. Like imagine you have your own life pack with you and that it's with you wherever you go. It represents everything intangible that you carry with you. So like your emotions, your, your joys, your fears, your dreams, your beliefs, and your gifts, like all these wonderful things that you have within you that we maybe sometimes don't give ourselves credit for or realize we even have. And so I start the session with everyone closes their eyes. I take you through a visualization, meaning I have, you know, imagine that there is a pack. What does it look like? It's your very own thing, you know, and then we're going to pull out a gift. This gift represents X, Y, and Z. You know, it represents, for example, the gift you're meant to share with the world. Maybe we pull out three different gifts with three different themes. And then afterwards, after the guided visualization, I offer, you know, it's a space to share. Everyone can share on their own. And it, all you do is share your experience, maybe some reflection on it if you want, but you don't have to share because it's a voluntary experience for that. What we find is during that time, one, everybody has an experience. Even if you don't see anything, that's an experience in and of itself, right? <laughs> you still see something or you're still having an experience. and. It's so fascinating what people come up with. Like, they're so surprised. Like, whoa, I didn't realize that my pack would look like this or that I would pull out this gift. Like, and they bring out and share their imagination. So that's an example. And then we'd have a reflection about it. And I'd always finish off with a little mini visualization. So there's different specific themes. Some have to do with your inner compass, you know, that guides you, your toolkit, the tools you take with you kind of exploring another one's like where you are in your life right now, looking at that as a visual, things like that. This is very cool. I love the idea around it. Do you feel like the group sessions are more powerful because people are sharing with each other? Or do you think the private sessions are just as impactful? Or what what do you kind of sense about that? Having done both the group, hands down. I'm surprised myself. I was not usually a group person myself doing things as groups, sharing as groups. I mean, if you had asked me that years ago, I would definitely have like turned away from that and didn't want, wouldn't want to have done that either as a facilitator or as a guest. (laughs) And so I'm so surprised that I'm, you know, in this experience saying it, but yeah, hands down, it's the group experience because I find that there's this amazing bond that happens with people, even if they don't know each other. I mean, that's what happened in Syros, Greece. People didn't know each other beforehand. They came together to this location and I've done this with athletes too. A version of it. I didn't use the guided visualizations as much, but I did virtually bring athletes internationally together in this first sessions. And there's this magic that happens when you bond over, you know, a, 
a shared experience. And then with the sharing, when you share what you experience, there's so much that happens, right? You realize, oh, we're not the only ones who have these fears. We're not the only ones who think this. Oh my gosh, I actually, I feel really heard and validated. I didn't know that was important to me. So there's so much that can happen when we do share it, even if it's maybe not the most comfortable thing to start. (laughs) Well, I think there's something in that vulnerability that is that's what bonds you, right? You know, so it's like if people are all scared or if there's like you're, you're opening up about something like you're not sure about like those kind of feelings, like when you're in that vulnerable state, but other people are doing it as well. There is that, that kind of natural bond. We used to call it when, when we were learning 10 meter platform, it's a very terrifying thing to hurl your body off a three story building. So we used to call that trauma bonding. So like when we're learning a platform list, we're, we're bonding through trauma here. (laughs) So yeah, it's, but it's the same thing because you're scared and you're vulnerable and there's something about that you latch onto the people around you for better or for worse. I think that is really, really cool. I love the idea of this. And I've, I've honestly never, I've heard about all kinds of coaching and I have not heard of this specifically. And I think it's really cool how you're inviting people to kind of figure out what's going on inside. I think this is really neat. Where can we listen to your podcast? Where can we learn more about Campfire and your coaching and things like that? Best way is definitely sign up for my newsletter because then you'll get new updates. Uh, you can do that on my Instagram on Jamie Comer. That's just my name, J-A-I-M-E-K-O-M-E-R or my website, jamiecomer.com. And that also has links to the podcast. You can watch my podcast at, or listen to it. So it's on the podcast platforms like Apple and then you can also watch it on YouTube. It's just Consciously Connected Podcast. And ones that you can watch from the Consciously Connected Podcast are in the different locations that I've lived this last year too. So you'll have kind of different visuals in those experiences as well. That's cool. So what brought you out of the nomad lifestyle? Because that sounds really intriguing to me. Oh, yeah. And it's still in our hearts for sure. I think it's it's a natural, just kind of a lifestyle way of thinking now too. We're welcoming our third baby in November. So, oh, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So we're just letting ourselves land in a place we love in Washington State. And we know how to also, when we are landed, meaning that we're in a one, we're renting a home for longer than, you know, a few months. Yeah. <laughs> we know how to make it an adventure too. We know how to go out and have fun and go explore places and really look at it with fresh eyes. So we'll make the most of it wherever we are. And I wouldn't be surprised if next year we go adventuring again, though. <laughs> awesome. Well, invite me along. It sounds like a blast. <laughs> awesome. Jamie, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experience and all about this really cool coaching that you're doing. So listeners, go check out all of her stuff. It's amazing. Thank you so much. Laura, thank you. I feel honored to be here and just so appreciative of all that you do here. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests, and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.